0: Hey everyone, welcome to Fostering Excellence in Agility, the podcast. I'm your host, competitor, coach, and mentor, Megan Foster. I help agility enthusiasts focus on the small details of training and behavior while still having a clear understanding of their big picture goals. Join me as I take you through key elements of dog agility training, competing, and teaching, and how you can take action today to start improving your skills within the sport. Let's get started. Okay, friends, today I want to talk to you about teeter training. I am gearing up to start my teeter training class hosted on FDSA and class starts October 1st. So of course, I am diving into some really common questions that always come up during class and when i'm problem solving teeter training with students and so i asked my community what are your teeter questions what do you need to know what do you need more education on for training the teeter and troubleshooting the teeter and i want to dive into those questions and talk about those answers now i did answer most of the questions via text in the mighty network so if you are interested in joining the community i will leave the link in the show notes but you can navigate to synergydogsports.com slash community and get all of the details about how to subscribe and join the conversation so first uh, a question from kathy That says, I have taken your teeter course and loved it, and I prefer the four-on-teeter performance, but now my 11-pound Sheltie is showing confusion with her two-on-two-off dog walk. What is the best way to resolve this? So first, I have to talk about why I prefer to teach the teeter first to begin with, and mainly, I want the dog very clear on which obstacle moves and which obstacle doesn't move from kind of a long approach and going very fast. The teeter and the dog walk look very similar. And if we are training for independence, our physical cues probably also look pretty similar. We're running ahead. We're running past. We're expecting them to find their end position and wait for release all on their own. So I have found that if they learn the dog walk first, they have a harder time discriminating between the teeter and the dog walk. I don't really know why, but it is what I've observed. And so I really, really try, if I can get in with people when their dogs are young, that they do teach the teeter first so that the dog is really confident and comfortable with the one that moves. Additionally, if you're going to have a two-on-two-off dog walk, and a four-on teeter. I have also observed that dogs that learn a two-on-two-off first in any context have a much harder time learning a four-on. And this makes sense to me because maybe at some point in the two-on-two-off training, they did offer some four-on and they learned pretty quickly that that wasn't going to be acceptable. And so two-on-two-off becomes salient very easily. And so if they learn two-on-two-off first, it can be a challenge to condition them to maintaining a four-on and not confusing the two. So that's the little background information. But sometimes these problems happen and we need to solve them. So my answer is, if the dog is stopping short on the dog walk, I'd work just the dog walk with no sequencing, and release the dog forward to a pre-placed reward no matter where she stops. You want to tweak and play with how far away the reward is in order to get the dog into the two-on-two-off position. I suggest this because if the dog is offering four-on on on the dog walk, it's not 100% wrong. If we correct the dog's position, we might just wreck our four on for the teeter. So, we just want to be strategic that we're not punishing the dog's decision to stop in any way because we don't want them to get weird about offering for on. We just want to make it clear that we prefer two on two off in that situation. If the dog is stopping two on two off on the teeter, I would suggest. Putting something under the teeter like a tunnel bag or a pillow so that when the teeter does tip, it doesn't completely hit the ground. It's just a tiny bit in the air, but low enough that it's still safe for the dog to exit on their own, but high enough that it makes four on more clear. So that could be something that you do when you are starting to reintegrate the dog walk and the teeter into same training sessions. You can make the four on more obvious by leaving the teeter just slightly in the air. But also, when you're integrating these two cues that are similar, you want to start with the one that they're struggling with the most and don't do the easy one for a few weeks. Then work up to dog walk one day, teeter the next, dog walk, teeter, dog walk, teeter. Then walk up to, work up to maybe three minutes of teeter training, three minutes of dog walk, three minutes of teeter, three minutes of dog walk, and then eventually working them in the same kind of set or sequence. So you want to be careful about not letting confusion creep in and trying to set those things up so that it's really, really obvious for the dog which one is which. But that is a super common question, and I love working that out with students. The next question comes from Rachel, who is interested in learning about adding forward focus and keeping criteria until released while the handler stays behind. And there was some definite feedback that this was a popular question. And I do want to say that sending forward to an object is a prerequisite skill that we can train separate from the teeter. So it might be sending to a foot target it might be sending to a perch where they put their front feet on it may be sending to a cato board where they put all four feet on and just building up their idea that they can move away from the handler they can move away from reinforcement and that they don't have to turn their bodies all the way around even when they're behind this might even be taking it back to leaving the dog in a sit and expecting them to maintain criteria of that sit even while you walk behind them. They're, they might turn their heads, but they shouldn't turn their entire bodies. They shouldn't turn their paws. So that might be how far back you have to go in order to split and build success. But you want to make sure that they can do that. Like, Can they physically face their bodies forward with the handler behind? If you think it's important that they also look forward when you're behind then you have to add that in. I personally don't need them to be looking forward when I'm behind because I need them to be looking at me to know where I'm going to release them next. And if I'm behind, what if I'm strategically behind because I need them to turn towards me after the teeter and come back in the direction that I am in. So that may vary in your preference of where they're looking when they're waiting for release but that can just be added in based on placement of reward and also criteria of being released. If it's important to me that they're looking forward, I'm going to make sure that throughout the entire training process, I only release them when they are looking forward. And then when I'm training the actual teeter, value is always for the end of the board. And sometimes... I will mark with room service, which means I'm going to bring the reinforcer to you while the dog is still moving forward and looking forward. So the room service marker produces a stop, but I am able to mark that moment that they are moving forward and looking forward. And so all of that is going to get baked in to my reinforcement strategy. The next question, also from Rachel, wants to discuss the pros and cons of a four-on versus two-on-two-off for large dogs. Because I think it's really common already that small dogs, um, maybe less than 20 pounds or so, 25 pounds, are already teaching a four-on because it's not practical for lighter weight dogs to hold the board down with only two feet back on. So now we are kind of talking about larger dogs here. And... These are things that I talk about frequently because there are concerns. Uh, Generally speaking, students are concerned that four-on is less clear, that it's harder to maintain clarity of where those four feet should be stopped. There's concerns about the dog confusing two-on-two-off dog walk versus four-on, which I addressed in the first question. But... Also, there are some really obvious pros that, in my opinion, outweigh these concerns or potential cons. The pros for me is that I don't have to worry about the dog's body being pushed or pulled back into the air by the teeter. If even a large dog in a two-on-two-off, if they are too far forward and their rear toes are barely hanging on, it's possible for that board to come up and get them or if they come off and they only have one foot, maybe the board comes up behind them, or they stop completely off the board, but they stopped and they just stopped a little late. Now the teeter is going to be coming up behind them and they can't see it. They don't know it's about to potentially hit their tail or bang really loud behind them. So that those things, those potential problems of the dog getting concerned or scared by those things outweighs any sort of training um, con or concern that might come up there also unless you have a dog that like slides into it and dangles their front feet off the edge and then just slams into two-on-two-off your dog that stops in the two-on-two-off teeter has to stop in four-on and then move into the two-on-two-off position and if I'm maintaining very clear criteria, I can't release my dog until they stop in the two-on-two-off position. If my dog can just run across a teeter, get into the four-on position, and wait for the board to hit the ground and then wait for my release, I can release a tiny bit sooner in those cases. Overall, I'm not opposed to dogs learning two-on-two-off. I generally start all dogs with four-on, and then I take their learning history into account their trainer's skills into an account and also the trainer's goals for that dog into account and I just kind of let the dog tell me if they are very very strongly offering two on two off and it is not going to be convinced otherwise easily then absolutely I will train the two on two off but if I have a blank slate and everything is the same I am going to opt for the four on behavior The next question comes from Sarah, and this applies to both the teeter and the stop dog walk. How do you translate and maintain independent performance from focused training into sequencing and coursework? For example, if the dog shows highly independent performance when you are training the contact specifically, but is much more distracted by the handler in a real sequencing situation. I think this one is a really interesting question and we have to Probably ask each individual dog different questions, but my very first inclination is to consider the reinforcement strategies that this dog has experienced with relation to the contact training. So when we are training, we have our rewards on us. They're usually visible, they are usually coming immediately after the obstacle and it's basically a one-to-one ratio we might be putting a tunnel or a jump before the contact obstacle but we are reinforcing the contact so whether we like it or not the reinforcer being visible becomes part of the cue picture for that really really excellent contact performance and then as we add sequencing that cue picture changes because now even if you're sequencing with the toy on your body The cue picture is no longer the same because the dog doesn't totally know when the reward is coming. So the toy in your hand or your training vest being on with treats in it becomes less relevant and less part of that cue picture. So we do have to take care to also show the dog in any training situation what that cue picture looks like when we don't have the food and the toys on us. And I can do this in a variety of ways. I can teach my dog very early on about remote reinforcement. So reinforcement stashing. So putting the reinforcer elsewhere that is only accessible by the human because that's what it's going to look like in a competition. And I can apply that to the very basic skills. So even before my dog's ever on a dog walk, I can Perhaps do that send to perch skill and then mark and reward with the food or toys that's off my body. And so the reward being visible isn't a part of the cue picture. And then as I start to add more obstacles after, I want to be careful that I am using obstacles that the dog really, really likes and really, really understands. So if you start sequencing, obstacles together too soon before they all have kind of this equal desire from the dog to complete and complete with accuracy, you could potentially be damaging your really good ones by giving them a harder task afterwards. So an example would be if you're trying to build enthusiasm for the teeter and drive across the teeter, but then you are adding weave poles after the teeter and your dog really struggles with weave poles, then you're probably punishing your teeter behavior with the opportunity to go weave versus if your dog loves tunnels and you do a lot of tunnel, he maintains criteria or you do teeter, he maintains criteria and then you give him the tunnel. Then the tunnel is reinforcing the teeter behavior. So we have to do the same thing with our actual reinforcers. And I do that via back chaining. So if I want to transfer the value of the toy to a jump after the teeter, then I need to show my dog that it's going to be jump reward, jump reward, jump reward. And then I'm going to do teeter jump reward. And I'm going to show them that pattern so that they're comfortable with the fact that reinforcement is not always going to come immediately following the teeter but it can come following a variety of obstacles. And so what happens is the jump becomes the reinforcer for the teeter. And then I'm going to stretch that out even further to include the reinforcement being stashed outside the working space like it is at a trial. And I'm going to insert the dog's leash into this pattern. So it might be jump, leash, reward, teeter, jump, leash, reward, tunnel, teeter, jump, leash, reward, and so on and so on until the dog is comfortable sequencing a variety of obstacles and different numbers of obstacles with the same intensity that they can do them with the reward on my body. The next question comes from Diane, and I think this is a really common question um, that gets asked in a variety of ways all the time, regardless of what I'm training, and it is about release cues. So Diane asks, is your release cue the next obstacle or something generic? And so my answer is always going to be it's the next obstacle or the next behavior. Uh, And that just saves me time and it saves the dog time. So when the dog is waiting for the release on the teeter, I'm already in position to physically cue the next obstacle. And their verbal cue for the next obstacle releases them from their stop position and also commits them to the next obstacle so that is just how my training has evolved there's nothing wrong with saying a generic cue and then the next behavior cue but you might prefer just giving the next behavior cue our next question comes from k and k asks there is a huge difference in difficulty between large and small dogs the board can be controlled better by a large dog what special considerations do you give to the dog's weight when training the teeter? And does tipping point figure into it? Is the impact or bounce back less if we teach them to stop at the tipping point, ride it down, and then exit? This is a really fantastic question. There's a lot of things in here, and I want to kind of go backwards in that Any handler can teach the behavior that they are comfortable with that also supports their goals. It is a fact that the at the higher the higher level that you are competing at, the more speed matters. And so getting a dog to run all the way to the end is going to tip it faster. It's going to make sure that we can release them faster. It's going to mean that our course times are overall faster and we all have to decide if that, teaching them that, even if it, it does come with some concerns about impact, we have to make sure that that sits okay with us as a whole and and our version of agility and the goals that go along with that. So while I absolutely have worked with like even giant breeds that it starts tipping so soon. The dog doesn't have the opportunity to get to the end before it's on the ground because the dog is so heavy. And so we don't put as much effort into a precise stop for those dogs because there's no way that they can fly off of it unless they don't reach the pivot point at all. There's no way. But when I think about a small dog, if we stop, if we teach a small dog to stop sooner It's going to take a much longer time for the board to hit the ground. And I'm not actually sure it would change the impact. It would just change the speed of the impact, which would give the dog more time to prepare or things like that. One concern that I would have, especially with a small dog, is that if they stop sooner and it tips and then it hits the ground once and they feel safe to continue forward and then it bounces. Now they're moving while it bounces and that might actually be more dangerous. So that's kind of the second half of that. And so I I would go in my experience, I would say teaching the dogs to run to the end is fairly safe with the exception of those big dogs that they would never get there. Um, but to answer the first part of this question, what do I do differently? And I personally, I approach teeter training the same for all of them. I pay attention to the natural tendencies and needs of the eventual individual dog. And then I make sure that to the best of our ability, those needs are also aligned with the handler's needs and goals. Um, the The biggest difference is the lighter the dog we need to convince them that waiting is definitely okay and so they need a lot of patience because it is going to take longer regardless of where they stop it's going to take longer for the board to tip and it's going to take longer for the board to stop moving if there is a little bit of bounce to it and so that's where I would be really concerned is do I want to be releasing my very small dog while it's still bouncing a little bit or do I want to take that little bit of extra time and wait for the board? to completely come to a stop before I release them to the next obstacle. Those are things that I would consider if I had a dog that was kind of less than 10 pounds. But unfortunately, I don't have any personal experience with dogs that small. Just working with my students. Those are the conclusions I've come to. And finally, before we wrap up, those were all the fantastic questions from the Community over in Mighty Networks. I also just want to give my kind of top three things that are the most important to me when training the teeter. And number one, we've talked about already here today is that if I have a clean slate, if I have a new dog to agility or a puppy, I want to teach the teeter first. I can be training the basics for dog walk, either running or stopped. I can do that uh, separately away from the dog walk, but I want to teach the four on behavior to fluency and on cue first, because as I've already said, it's much easier to teach the four on if they learn it first. And I also want to get them to at least a half height teeter with a little bit of sequencing and a little bit of handling before I introduce them to even a dog walk ramp, because I want them to be very, very confident in understanding that the cue that I name the teeter means this is the one that moves. So I want to give them time to really learn that verbal cue. I think them learning the Verbal cue for the teeter is maybe one of the most important words on the agility course so that before they ever get to it, they already have in their heads that this is the one that they are going to run to the end. They're going to stop and it's going to move. And then once I'm really comfortable with what they look like, maybe even on a handful of teeters and doing a teeter tour, then I will introduce the actual dog walk ramp. However, I'm training the dog walk. The second thing is that I do prefer a four on. We've discussed that already, um, at length and you all now, you all know now why I prefer the four on. And finally, when I'm teaching the teeter, it needs to always move, whether I'm using a prop or a low teeter or a high teeter. It's really important to me that when they hear that teeter cue, that it always moves and that we never kind of lie to them by holding it up and it doesn't move until they get to the end because that's not a reality. And I am very cautious to make sure that they don't confuse that with the dog walk. So with those three things in mind, I hope that that has given you some insight into how I look at teeter training and how I go about teeter training. And if you're interested in training your teeter behavior or retraining your teeter behavior with me, I would love to have you join me in class this term at the Finzi Dog Sports Academy. Until next time, see you later.